It doesn't seem to be standing out as a particular issue to alcohol. It's still a particular issue to the person. You're failing at something. Yeah, and there's no social media to track to track <laughs> their bullshit. So, <laughs> so people are not posting a lot of like sad selfies. Could you imagine? They have to like take out a pen and paper and like they drew their own penis. Here's the dick pic. <laughs> History. I'd like to follow me. Hello, and welcome to HILF, History I'd Like to Fuck with Don Brody. I'm Don Brody, and I am loving it here in the den. That's the Deluxe Edition Network. To hear other great podcasts in the den, follow the link in the show notes or go to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. But this episode, the history of Alcoholics Anonymous, AA, an organization started in the United States in the 1930s that has helped millions achieve and maintain sobriety. It is international, multilingual, and has inspired dozens of other similar 12-step programs. And it has its critics and its defenders, of course, but it also has an amazing origin story, one that stars a series of unlikely heroes. And for a club that by definition is full of drunks, it has always been remarkably scandal free. <laughs> but listen, if it's scandal you're looking for, look no further than my guest, L.A.-based comedian Jason Ryan. He is on screens big and small, and I adore him. <laughs> Trust me, you are about to, too. <laughs> Let's get started. Maybe just Jason. Yeah. And then you can be like, Cher. Or Madonna. Or Madonna. Yeah. Or maybe Madonna Cher Sting. <laughs> Madonna Cher Sting. Jason Cher like Madonna a great Sting. band that we should start. I actually have made money as a share impersonator. It's been years. Shut up. Let me see this. Let me see this. Oh, <laughs> gypsies, tramps, and thieves. We'd hear it from the people in the town. It's not great. It's not great. That but was it so wasn't beautiful. bad. I had a way, what you couldn't see, listeners. I did a little flip. Um, and, she, and, and she did the lips. She did the lips. Oh, and the eyes closed oh, a little bit. Oh, you know, it's you, you get in there. It's like an accent. Cher is like a dialect. You have to, like, yeah. find the placement. She's her own sovereign nation, for sure. Snap out of it. I just saw your T-Mobile commercial. It's so good. How crazy. How cool. I had no idea I was going to be in... Like most of it, like I had no idea. You're the guy. You're the first face. First, first frame. They use. They cut so many people out of that. Like I watched yeah. them record like Wells with a bunch of different people that you end up seeing at the end. But like they use me twice. Mm-hmm. And cut a bunch of, so I don't know. I'm really flattered. It's so cool. And tell us, tell us where else we may have seen you because I know that you have. You have a viral Instagram, oh my God. a viral Instagram post, and you're posting like cool content all the time. What else do you do? Uh, it, I do stand up. Uh, well, that was where I first met you. That's how we first met. Yeah, I first met Jason doing stand-up in a brewery. <laughs> yeah. Bar, bar, brewery, bar situation. In like North Hollywood somewhere. Yeah. Well, and you stood out to me uh, pretty quickly because not only were you headlining, but you were there early. Like you were like eating a meal and I was like, okay. And then then you jumped into a conversation my friend Chris Cowan and I were having about like nepotism babies and you were like, you put in your two cents and I was like, I like this girl. Like, <laughs> I was like, I like her. And so I was immediately a fan. Oh. Now tell me where you are from originally. Los Angeles, born and you're raised. You're like, you're an Angelino. Yeah. Uh, they Wait, call me a unicorn. And I'm like, all my friends are like 
from Los Angeles. This gives me a lot of comfort, actually, because my daughter, of course, I'm raising an Angelino. Yeah, and yeah. I'm a Midwest girl. My husband's a Midwest guy. Like, we don't, sometimes we feel a little out of water <laughs> being like, <laughs> there are so many malls here and no winter. We really don't know how to help you with this growing up here. Yeah. So it's nice. I'd like to introduce her to people who have grown up here and be like, see, you'll still be a weirdo, but like a totally normal weirdo. Well, I mean, everyone she's growing up with and going to school with are also native Angelinos, so she'll be she'll be surrounded. But you, maybe you could teach her how to deal with like weather like we're having right now because I am dying. You don't like this. It hit 40 and I, I, I don't. You don't ever like go up to the mountains just to like get no. yourself seasoned. No, not at all. I can't handle sand in my feet. Like, what am I going to do with like snow? Like, I can't, I, it just doesn't it happen. Is, it is unusually cold in LA right now. Not only is it is it below 50 it's snowing in parts of la county like pasadena and pouring with rain yeah it's not good but yeah. she can handle that she's yeah we take her to minnesota for christmas she'll she'll have the <laughs> full parentheses of experience you really did your homework jason i said what would you like me to research? And you came back with choices, girl. You were like, yes, I, w I can't wait to be on the show, which is always exciting for me. And you assigned me AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. Can you tell me why AA was the subject you wanted me to dig in on? Yeah, well, that was the pared down list that I sent you. There was, it was a pared down There list. was more. Um, but AA has always fascinated me because there is so much lore around the group itself because it is anonymous. Um, and also, full disclosure, like I went through a treatment program uh, almost a decade ago. I did about a year in AA and decided it wasn't for me, and I moved on to do other stuff uh, with my recovery. But um, AA has just always fascinated me. Yeah. Because it's like, does it work? Does it not work? And like, when I was in AA, I absolutely hated it. Really? <laughs> I hated it. I had a clinician that I really trusted who was like, uh, you should check out some AA meetings. And at the time I was looking for a community. A lot of my friends were still drinking and doing drugs. And so I was looking for like friends who like didn't do that. And it, I just, I never liked it. I never got it. I never fit in. But you did it for a year. A year. Yeah. I got to like step Seven. I see. I, did, I didn't even look back over them before today. Yeah. I was like, Don's gonna tell me. I'm gonna tell you all. I think this I got stuff. to seven, and then I was like, peace. Yeah. Okay. You know, I was really intrigued going into this too, and I was so glad that you assigned it to me because it's one of those organizations I have no personal experience with. I have never been through AA, and I've never been to a meeting. No one in my immediate family has that I know of. It's still anonymous, though. Maybe. I'm from rural Wisconsin, so we have plenty of alcoholics. <laughs> I'm just saying no one that went through AA that I'm aware of. But it is an intriguing organization that permeates the culture of the United States, certainly, whether or not you have any direct access to it. People know what the program is. Mm -hmm. They know what, generally, if you say, I have to go to a meeting, they and if there's any kind of like wink, not everyone knows what a meeting is in the 12th. You know, we get yeah, it. Yeah, this yeah. is this has made its way um, to us. So let me tell you about. I'm so excited. The sources. <laughs> OK, that I have uh, gone to for this hill thing of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, first of all, is their own big book. They call it the big book. It is called Alcoholics Anonymous. It is like the one and only like text for folks who are going through the program. It's been around since the beginning of the organization. It is free everywhere. Um, I went to aa.org and read a lot of the digital version, but I guess you can get a hard copy for like $5. Yeah. And they have a lot of their own history, the history of the members. It's got everything you need there. There was also... <laughs> 
this is where, ooh, my nerd flag really got to come out here and fly. I watched twice a lecture by a guy named Tolly Merrick. He was speaking from um, the University of Virginia, I think. And it was a beautiful, it was right in the early uh, COVID. So it's like people were still sort of getting used to like doing a lecture online. Oh, okay. And then he had slides and he was like one of those like leather patch on the elbow wearing gray bearded oh, historians. With and, like a pipe. Mm, mm. And I just like sat down with Tolly and like let him lecture <laughs> history all over me. I'll have a link in the show notes if you want to get some Tali action. I do. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was a couple of uh, good documentaries, some that focus on AA as an organization, some that focused on specifically on Bill Wilson, who is one of the founders of AA. And collectively, it was just a really, really fun history to research. And yeah. I can't wait. Are you ready to fuck? Or I'm so excited. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's fuck. So here's my plan. What I'm going to do is I'm going to start with kind of the general history of human consumption of alcohol. Okay. Because it seems like there's this sort of division of opinion about what alcohol is in general to human history. Some people are like, ooh, it is as ancient as drinking water. Breathing air, we've been we've been consuming alcoholic beverages forever, and some folks who are like, no, this is really modern. It's like it's as bad for us as meth. It's just as like unnatural for us as any other drug. It's just that we've had it longer. And the fact is, both perspectives are kind of true in terms of uh, human beings' sort of general relationship mm -hmm. uh, with drinking alcohol. Then I'm going to go into the origin of AA and how, how human consumption of alcohol led us to an organization like Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and then we're going to talk about sort of where they stand today and where, where we're at in 2023. <sighs> You have to admire AA in addition to whatever, however you feel about like people in recovery or how they've helped people in recovery is that this organization has been around for 88 years Yeah, and has no scandal, like deep sources of corruption. And part of the reason why is because there isn't really a huge umbrella money-making organization. Every single group is completely autonomous. So even if one AA group is like, girl, they be fucking each other and trying to get money from each other, they're lobbying for a political candidate, it would just be that one group. It doesn't affect any other AA group. It's not AA sanctioned. It's just they do their own thing, right. which is, I suspect, sort of good and bad. <laughs> but you got to admire, I mean, they've been, they could have, because you think there's no lobbying group. There's no one being lobbied by AA. Do you know what Not I mean? Anymore. There's no one saying, you know, if you want to get the vote of AA members, you need, it just doesn't, there's no like unanimity right, right, among right. AA members other than a desire to stop drinking. Yeah. I imagine that would have been an issue at the beginning though, when Bill W was mm -hmm. still around. I'm sure the deification of Bill W was pretty quick. If Bill, oh, Bill W. <laughs> the first thing I want to read is from the big book itself, like in terms of like what is AA as an, or, an organization. This is from the, the introduction to the book, 1939. It says, quote, we are not an organization in the conventional sense of the word. There are no fees or dues whatsoever. The only requirement for membership is an honest desire to stop drinking. We are not allied with any particular faith, sect, or denomination, nor do we oppose anyone. We simply wish to be helpful to those who are afflicted. 
Did you feel that sense that that was kind of what the organization was was about when you went into your group? No. And that was my experience. Uh, It it felt very, very Christian. Yeah. Uh, I remember hearing, and again, this was very early in my recovery, but I do remember hearing things like, you need to pick like a higher power. Mm -hmm. It could be a doorknob, which is super condescending in and of itself. Uh, I I love the idea of Mm. of that statement. I, I don't think it bore out in... In reality, I can, I'm honest. really intrigued to hear about your personal experience with this. As we go, please feel free to stop me, jump in, to give me any like, oh, when I was in, or like, this was my perspective of that. I love it, and I don't mind being interrupted. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. It's fair to say human beings have been drinking forever, because in terms of our understanding of um, human written language, mm-hmm. as long as we have been writing things down and we have been able to read the things that we have written down, we've been mentioning the booze. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, of course. Yeah. I love talking about when I was doing drugs, I was like, I'm going to write this into a oh, song. Oh, that's so fun. <laughs> This is a great song. <laughs> exactly right. Um, it looks like if you really want to pinpoint it, it started about 7,000 years ago. So give or take 5,000 BC is our best guess at when we got fermentation, an intentional fermentation of anything. Ooh. And this is happening in China, Egypt, India, Babylon, and it's wine and it's ales. And the percentage of alcohol is pretty low. We're talking 3 to 5%. So maximum of light beer, your, your kind of typical ale. Um, and it was considered by all of these cultures, which were very different in, in a lot of other ways to be a gift from God and nothing but a blessing. It was safe to drink. It made you feel pretty good. <laughs> it was a better alternative than water, depending on where you were living. Sure. And it was, it was you were so lucky that you were able to f- ferment this, and God must love us so much to give this to us. It was only considered bad if you did it to excess, which indicates to us that from the very beginning, there were individuals who were doing it to excess. Right. And that we were able to recognize that there are some folks at some times who do too much and then they're incapacitated. But right before you're incapacitated, boy, it's a fucking blast, right? <laughs> so we're, we kind of hump along with these 3 to 5% beverages in the various places in the world we're making them until about the early Middle Ages, about 1100 AD, when in various Arab cultures, they perfect distillation a little bit more and we can get a little bit more bang for the buck out of these wines and these grains. Monks from the West Mm -hmm. interact with some of these Arab cultures and are like, son of a bitch, like religiously, we couldn't be more different, but they are doing some fascinating, (laughs) something that we can definitely adopt is the way that they are fermenting their beverages. And, and you know, the stereotype of the drunk monk. Do I? I don't. Well, if you like Robin Hood, like there's always these sort of images of these early Middle Ages monks with like, they're usually very heavy set. They have like the bald patch on the top and they're almost always represented as being sort of jolly and drunk because one of the things they did was they were the ones who fermented beverages. (laughs) And they had to taste their own supply, of course. Listen, it's from God. God loves us. (laughs) Um, And of course they were like, and this is so great. This high alcohol content is so good for the medicinal purposes. (laughs) If you're trying to cure a boring afternoon, (laughs) then heck yeah. And then we really get the gut punch around 1400 AD. Still Middle Ages, but kind of late Middle Ages. um, The Scottish and the Welsh and the Irish and some of our other Europeans are like, we really got this stuff distilled and they are making whiskey and gin and spirits, hard hitting spirits. 
1400, of course. Columbus sails the ocean blue, 1492, right? So a lot of these new, for human beings, anywhere on earth, this new thing is is going global, just like everything else is, you know? Just dropping their single. I got it. That's right. Absolutely right. They were like, wicka, wicka, whiskey. Um, Yeah, and people love it because, duh, hello. You know, it's fantastic. and, and, And people are... Um, taking it on these long journeys on the ships. And again, it's considered great medicine and this great alternative to water. And yeah, some people get fucking nuts and can't appear to stop. But that is something that seems to be a vice that goes that, that they're rolling with at the moment. It doesn't seem to be standing out as a particular issue to alcohol. It's still a particular issue to the person. You're failing at something. Yeah, and there's no social media to track to track <laughs> their bullshit. So, <laughs> so people are not posting a lot of like sad selfies. Could you imagine? They have to like take out a pen and paper and like, this is me. Like, (laughs) you know what? I imagine though there probably was like letters home. Like you would have to know if you get a letter three times a year and one of them just like at the end of every sentence (laughs) sort of slides down. You're like, like, baby, I was on um, a horse when I wrote that. So they drew their own penis. Here's the dick pic. I believe it, man. I have to believe there's a there's a museum out there. Somebody out there is curating ancient dick pics right now. Oh my god! I cannot wait. I cannot. Wait. I cannot I'll be the first one in line. Yeah. Can we go together? Yeah. Okay. Cool. And I'm going to kind of start focusing now on America. Um, we, from the very beginning, are getting these stiff-ass drinks. And then even the colonists in those like early 1600s, like permanent colonies and like Jamestown and stuff like that, had pretty much a mandate to plant grain and plant grapes specifically for fermentation because there's they're coming from these crowded European cities where water and purified water is so difficult to get that they were like, when we get there, girl, like let's get ahead of this and make sure that we have all of our fermented beverages. And they got there and they're like, totally, we got it. But we have some like really good water. <laughs> <laughs> like the water is really clean. And they were like, yeah, keep, keep making the wine and the beer though. We just see it because it's safer than water. It's been a fucking line that we've been serving throughout history. It's like getting drunk. Keep going. Then it's compounded by the center of the tavern in early American life, right? The tavern was where you met socially, where you met for your entrepreneurial business transactions. It was where you um, conducted church meetings at times. I mean, you went, wanted to run for public office, you would go to a tavern. So like the the actual place where you consume alcohol is already a nucleus mm-hmm. of, of like American life. And George Washington swoon. <laughs> Even with those teeth? Especially. Uh, <laughs> learning a lot about Don today. Oh, I love George. Right? My daughter's middle name is Washington. <gasps> That's Ooh. adorable. Mm. He had some flaws. But he was also the number one distiller. 1799, he had a Scottish farmer running his Mount Vernon who was like, George, I have an idea. Right, I got an idea. <laughs> I think that you need to take part of your field. Like this bread grain is just fine. But may I recommend that you plant beer grain? because you're going to be much better off whiskey grain. And so he like turned over a bunch of his fields and was making 11,000 gallons of whiskey a year. He was making more whiskey himself than like anyone else in the colonies combined. That's insane. For a while. That's yeah. so much. Crazy. And you know, life I mean keeps going in America. We we after this of course among a lot of other things we got westward expansion, then we have the civil war, and now we've had 100 or so years of 
consumption of alcohol, not only unchecked, but growing and broadening and following us everywhere we go. And we're starting to recognize there is a very serious problem that's holding hands with alcohol that we just can't pretend we don't see anymore. And so for a long time, um, they, we were like, well, I, I, yeah, okay. There are people who can't drink. They are drunks. They are degenerates. Mm-hmm. They have no willpower. Mm-hmm. They are sinners who are, <laughs> they, they look at their hungry, sad family and keep drinking because they're bad. And so what do you do with people who are sinful and weak and bad? They put them in asylums and hospitals and uh-huh. jail. Right. I mean, the way that I looked at it is if you were a degenerate drunk, that meant you were a criminal, you go to jail. Right. If you're an insane drunk. Right. This means you're crazy. You go to an asylum. Mm -hmm. And if you're a hopeless drunk, it means that, you know, we have to take really good care of you. And really, the only difference between any of these is how much money you have. (laughs) I was about to ask. Yeah. The rich did this. The poor. Exactly right. I mean, and and one of the things that. insane is such an interesting part of this conversation around alcohol and alcoholism. Um, they, they use the word crazy and they use the word insane. And one of the things that they try to be clear about is that when we say drinking is insane, we don't mean the crazy shit you do when you're drunk. Oh. We don't mean you put a lampshade on your head and you take your pants off and run down the street. Like that's crazy drunk stuff to do. What we mean about the insanity of drinking is that you seem to think Right, the definition of insanity, doing the same thing again and again and expecting a different result. The insanity of an alcoholic is you think you can drink and you won't do what you've done every other time. You That's think a, you can have one drink and stop. That's crazy. That's insane. so familiar. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I used so to the, tell myself, just we're just gonna have two. We're gonna stop at two. <laughs> sounds like sounds like our ancestors couldn't either. That's no, fine. I mean, and it's and so there really starts to become this recognition of it. Now we do actually. I, I found this crazy. I didn't know this. Eighteen forty nine is when we first get the first individual to say this is a disease. Oh, interesting. This is not simply are you stupid, sinful, or weak. It's a disease that affects the human body and is like a virus. It hits some people harder than others. Um, The individual to coin the phrase alcoholic is Dr. Magnus Huss. He's Swedish, kind of a stone-cold fox, not going to lie. And and it makes sense. He's the first one to be like, oh, no, 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 we don't have to like say these people are bad. They just can't stop drinking. But then his cure, his idea of like, okay, so what we need to do, no more booze. Just take all the booze away. And this is is a logical thought. And it's what led us to prohibition in America in the 1920s. It was the same idea of like, yes, we see the problem. We can separate it from the person's failings and recognize that it is simply really good, well-intentioned, smart, strong people consume this stuff and lose themselves. So we'll just not let them have it anymore. What prohibition taught us in the United States is that that does a lot of things. Uh, except stop a drunk from drinking, <laughs> right? Right. It just simply, you you can't. And I was trying um, to get my head around, I'm not an alcoholic, but I do understand addiction. I can sort of get my, you know, when I'm trying to feel out the edges and, yeah. and empathy for this. I used to smoke cigarettes. Fucking, oh, Same God, girl. I love cigarettes. When can we start again? Mm, God, right? When the comet, when they're like, when the, the comet's comet coming. I loved smoking cigarettes. It made me feel cool. I loved everything about it. 
then you start to realize, oh my God, I don't feel great. Like long term, <laughs> I don't feel great. And it's so expensive and all of the very logical things that are like, you have to quit. Okay. So I quit smoking. Now where I'm at right now with smoking is I haven't had a cigarette and I cannot remember. Mm. It's been years. Um, I see other people smoking and I'm usually kind of like, Ugh, right? yeah. um, I don't want to go back to smoking again. And if you had a pack of cigarettes on this table, I would smoke the whole fucking box. If there was a pack of cigarettes in this house, I would smoke the entire box. But you can just stop. Yeah, they have cigarettes at the Smart and Final right around the corner. And I have no temptation. I was there today buying other things. I didn't have any temptation to buy the cigarettes and bring them into my house. But if they're right here, if they're sitting right here, or if you were smoking one, I'd be done. I'd be done. I'd have to have one. Oh, wow. So, you know, I, but I think that when they're talking about, when they, when they classify alcoholics and the various phases of alcoholism. You get it. From what I understand where we are with, with drug and alcohol addiction is that it's, it more closely resembles um, obsessive compulsive disorder than it does like a disease disease. They do say you can recognize addiction in brain waves. And it doesn't necessarily matter yeah. yeah, what the what the element is, what it is that you're addicted to. We have sort of similar synapses are firing and you can find that obsession. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All of that to say, though, that certainly the approach that we took during Prohibition Does not was work. completely ineffective. No. Unless what you were trying to do was create organized crime in America. <laughs> <laughs> in which case, we love it. boy, that was an overnight success. We got but, so many hotties from oh, that, though. Just, but, but statistically, when they looked at the quantity of people drinking and the quantity quantity of people who had been dangerously drinking before and after prohibition, there was no difference. It would have gone up? It, uh, in a lot have... of places it went yeah. up because it was more intriguing for some. So yeah, there, there may have been some individuals that were like, oh my God, thank God they made it illegal. Now I'm, I'm going to be good because I don't have to go to bars anymore. Right. But there were just as many people that were like, why they make it illegal? Is it because it's like too great or like how, how great is it? They passed prohibition in 1919. 1920, it goes into effect. It's repealed because we realized what a fucking terrible idea it was in 1933. But when you look at the condition of alcoholics now in 1933 and 1934, especially they're adults and have been drinking throughout, they're in a somewhat more desperate position than they ever were before because it's like, now I I was probably drinking before prohibition. Mm -hmm. Prohibition did nothing to help me. No. I didn't come out of this. But, and now they've literally admitted, well, taking it away from you doesn't work. You're still going to go find it. So the understanding seemed to come with now you personally need to find a way to stop yourself from taking it. Yeah. You have to stop yourself from doing it because we can't stop you from the outside. When it goes undergrounded, that's just... Ugh. I mean, we're seeing it now with like uh, crystal meth and and opiates and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Where like if you if it's illegal or you, it's illegal for you to have access to it. If you have a problem with it, how are you going to come out and go, hey, I have this problem and I need help for it? So I can I can imagine that only exploded during prohibition. Yeah, and and now I mean, Alcoholics Anonymous is anonymous for a lot of reasons. And we'll talk about sort of why the anonymity is so key to the organization, but certainly. If you had a real problem drinking during Prohibition, everyone's going to be like, well, stop breaking the law. You're breaking, (laughs) you know, this is illegal. So asking for help had just been more difficult for them. So coming out of Prohibition, um, we we have a whole new situation for folks who identify themselves as alcoholics, even if they haven't quite received that term yet from Mm -hmm. our friend Magnus. (laughs) Right. 
So what I'm going to talk about now is sort of AA's family tree. Okay. Okay. So we have all sorts of like seeds and spores in the water now. We, we've recognized as a world and as a country that alcohol is not going away and we have a problem mm -hmm. with it. So what are we going to do about this? The very first, I like to call it sort of the grandma. <laughs> if, this is, if this is AA's family tree, this is the grandma, is called the Oxford Group. Ooh. And one of the things that you said about your experience with AA was that it was a little too Christian. And there is, even though AA is so explicit about it's a higher power. We have no hierarchy, no allegiance to any particular faith or any particular religion. The fact is that baked into the DNA of AA is a Christian basis. And it comes from this Oxford group, even though as a Christian basis goes, especially in 1920, when this group was formed, they were non-denominational, which is about as radical as you could get. Sure, yeah. It was like 20s, like 1920 years ago going viral. Exactly. Like. Exactly. So 1920, they start, they call themselves, they, they coined the name in 1928. It's founded by this guy named Frank Buchanan. And generally speaking, the Oxford group is just a self-help group. It is Christian based, but it's not like we're trying to bring you to God. We're just trying to make everybody stronger, better people. Right. They said they wanted to overcome fear and selfishness. They wanted to help people make amends and get right with God. There were no dues, no fees, no hierarchy. And their main goal was just to like spread the word and make people better people. It was very philosophical, very kind of yeah. uh, woo-woo yeah. for the time, right? So you got the Oxford group, that's grandma. Okay. <laughs> this is your rich uncle. Okay. It's a guy named Roland Hazard III. Mm. I, love, I love a third. A third, a fourth... <laughs> My yeah. favorite. I do too. I mean, it's like, you know, his dad was junior. Yeah. What comes after three? Yeah. And Roland Hazard, I get it. You keep that name in the, everybody gets that name. That's a porn name for porn sure. Porn name. Well, and Roland Hazard, go it on, okay? Roland is handsome. Ooh. Roland is rich. Ooh. He comes from one of the finest families in Rhode Island. They got this huge textiles company. He went to Yale. His wife went to college. 1880s, your wife goes to college. Holy Come on, life. these guys are as rich as it, yeah. and as well-connected as you can get. And he is a, quote-unquote, hopeless drunk. I love him so much. I love him so much. And what we know, as we've already talked about, which is like, are you a degenerate? Are you a crazy? Are you whatever? It depends on how much money you have. Roland, of course, is one of those sad, hopeless drunks that needs help, right? Because he's so rich and so handsome. But we also know that the amount of money you have don't do it. Right. <laughs> if this was simply a matter of like rich people wouldn't be drunks if it was that easy. And we all know that that's not the deal. So, but he does have access to all these things. And one of the things that they do to get Roland Hazard the third oh, to fucking clean up is he goes to Carl Jung in Switzerland. No. Yes. And he dries out in Switzerland. Girl. Would come back to Rhode Island, get drunk. He goes to fucking Switzerland to dry out with Carl Jung twice. And Carl Jung, if you don't know, is, is a pretty, like, open-minded dude. And he says to Roland Hazard III, buddy, this isn't going to work. I can dry you out. I cannot stop you from consuming alcohol. I'm right. going to tell you the only thing that will help you. Spiritual awakening. Oh. And Carl Jung says, look, I don't know. I, I'm not. You know, he's hardly a faithful icon, Carl <laughs> Jung, right? But he did seem to understand that this issue of alcoholism had three sides. It was a physical addiction, it was a mental addiction, and there was a spiritual element. And he said, the only people I've ever heard of in your condition that have kicked it 
had to have a spiritual awakening. Interesting. I can't really tell you anything other than that, other than don't come back here because I can't give you anything more. So Roland's like, spiritual awakening, copy. And he really, God bless him, wants to get clean. So he goes back to New York and finds the Oxford group. Uh They are, quote, spiritual girl, and they are awake. (laughs) So he goes to the Oxford group and has a spiritual awakening and gets sober. Mm Mm-hmm. One of the things, because Oxford Group is evangelical to a certain extent and kind of a pyramid, like spread the word, Roland then converts and helps bring to sobriety this guy named Ebby Thatcher. Okay. The third, the fourth. Sadly, I think he's the only of his name. Disappointing. Which is Ebby Thatcher. It's no (laughs) Roland Hazard. Bless him. So Ebby Thatcher also achieves some level of sobriety. I don't think that he has maintained sobriety his whole life, but he does does really good. He has like a couple of relapses, but Mm -hmm. he does really, really well. And Ebby Thatcher then finds another hopeless drunk named Bill Wilson. Mm -hmm. And Bill Wilson is the daddy. He's the father yeah. of AA. He is the star of this story. He's a really intriguing figure. And we are going to talk more about him when we get back. Oh, my God. <laughs> this podcast is part of the Deluxe Edition Network. To find other great shows on the network, head over to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. That's deluxeeditionnetwork.com. Hey, this is Sammy. I'm here with my hetero life mate, Yen. Hey, Sammy. Hey there, Yen. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. So, we are part of the Barrel Age Chicks. And who else is part of us? Oh, we've got Harley, Snow, and Crystal. And ourselves, of course. Mm-hmm. If you like hearing about movies, podcasting about movies, <laughs> if you like hearing about music, or pretty much anything, come and check us out. Come hear the chick side of things. We can be found on Spotify and Anchor. And we are also under the Deluxe Edition Network. Come on out and hear the chick side of things. Come on. Hey, before we get back to the old TNA of AA, a request to please take a moment with whatever platform on which you're listening to leave us a rating and a review. Oh, it keeps the history coming. And to ensure that you're never the last to come, don't forget to subscribe and... I've listened to every episode except for um, I can't do the Supreme Court right now because I just it's too activating for me. I understand. So that's the only one I've skipped, but I've heard all of them. In fact, I've listened to the comedy one three times because I love it so much. With Wayne Fetterman, you on the show, you were so cute and just like the the love you had with him and the like. I just I loved listening to that one. Oh, that fills my heart. Thank you so much. I love. I truly am a fan. Like I'm geeking out, but I'm trying to play it cool. Um, I could talk. I could talk positively about you all all day. (laughs) Well, I have no shortage of tapes. Just go on. (laughs) Start with my eyes, and uh, and we'll work our way down. People are the best. Uh, People are the best. And also the worst sometimes. Listen, it's one of the things I love most about history and why I fuck it so much and can't stop and won't stop. Thank you. And it is because it's human stories. I mean, at the bottom line, the end of the day, human beings are amazing. They are amazingly awful. They are amazing. But it is an endlessly deep well. And to that end... We are going to start this second half of the fucking of Alcoholics Anonymous with a really, really 
cool dude, man. I really loved meeting Bill Wilson. Um, Bill Wilson is, I mentioned sort of the, the, the family tree of AA. And when we left off, I said that Bill Wilson was sort of the daddy. Mm-hmm. He's a great dad. I okay. mean, as dads go, he's a pretty, he's a drunk. But yeah. Lots of drunks have turned out. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> At the end of the day to be good dads. Um, Bill Wilson is a veteran of World War One, and he is married to this fantastic girl named Lois. Mm. They have a wonderful marriage. They don't have any kids, which some people would say perfect marriage. <laughs> <laughs> no, B, she doesn't mean it. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But they, they're very happy. They get along great. They have, you know. Everything's going great. He's a successful stockbroker in New York and a hopeless drunk. He started drinking when he was deployed in World War I. He found it was the way to feel confident. It was the only way for him to be able to talk to people that he had just met. He was utterly transformed and became addicted really quickly and couldn't kick it. Mm -hmm. He's also really good in the New York Stock Exchange. So Mm -hmm. he like moves his way up and is doing really well, but is so quote unquote hopelessly drunk that any time that it comes to like toasting to a good deal, (laughs) Buddy goes tits deep in and is like days long bender and just humiliating. And I learned the difference between passing out and blacking out. Do you know the difference between passing out and blacking out? Passing out is when I would imagine is when your body stops functioning like you just can't move anymore and then blacking out is when your memory there's a gap in your memory yeah they they call blacking out is literal amnesia you're still functioning talking engaging maybe driving maybe fucking people maybe doing all sorts of things Mm -hmm. and when you wake up the next day you have literally no memory. Right. They the the medical professionals do align it with a form of amnesia. Ooh, I don't know that. And um, and our buddy Bill Wilson is is in the passing out and blacking out phase, oh which God. is really scary. Um, his wife is very supportive, but she has her limits, and uh-huh. he realizes he's about to lose it all. That phase, right when you tip over into death, you lose your home, you lose your wife, you lose your job, right? And he has, at this point, checked himself into Towns Hospital Mm -hmm. in New York under the care of Dr. William Silkworth. And he's been there a couple of times. And the doctor's been very patient. (laughs) Just like like our buddy Roland Hazard III. He's like, girl, I can dry you out. Yeah. But when you go back out there into the world, it's right there. And of course, it's now 1935. He's been doing this through Prohibition. So we know there's no keeping it from you. Mm -hmm. And... um, and so he's like, I, you know, Dr. Silkworth is like, I don't, but just remember, and this is, this is key. I, I mentioned that in 1849, Magnus Huss d- calls it a disease for the first time. It's called el- alcoholism. Right. This message, this idea has sort of filtered down at this point to Dr. Silkworth in New York. And he's like, it is a disease, buddy. Don't beat yourself up too bad. And he explains to him that willpower is no more a cure for alcoholism than it is for tuberculosis. Huh. And he really comforts Bill Wilson in 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 sort of removing that idea that you're a piece of shit because you can't because <laughs> you can't kick the habit, you know, and you really can't believe you're a piece of shit or you won't be able to kick the habit, right? Sure. And again, just like Carl Jung, he's like, you need to probably find some sort of spiritual awakening. And it is at this point that he makes the acquaintance of Ebby Thatcher. You may remember, right? I'm getting the look on your face from (laughs) from part one. Ebby Thatcher (laughs) 
Well, the Hazard, Roland Hazard the Third converted Ebby Thatcher, uh-huh. and Ebby Thatcher's out there looking for a drunk <laughs> to fix. And our buddy Dr. Silkworth is, hooks him up, and 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 Ebby comes in and is talking to Bill Wilson, and and he says, "You got to find a God." Mm-hmm. And Bill Wilson's like, "I don't, buddy, no." He's really uncomfortable with the God stuff. Mm-hmm. He doesn't consider himself faithful at all. And at this point, he's like, "I've been to church enough." You know, if yeah. the good Lord was going to take this from me. He, I, I've already done, tried. Kind sure, of sure. And, uh, and he goes out that night and gets drunk. He gets out of the hospital. Bill Wilson goes out, gets wasted, and then shows up wasted to Ebby Thatcher at the Calvary Rescue Mission and is like, all right, <laughs> let me give it a try. I'm so fucking desperately drunk all the time. I can't help myself, please, right? And he converts to Jesus, has this huge ch- moment in a church with the Calvary mission, goes back to his wife, Lois, and is sober for 24 hours. Woo! Fuck. <laughs> goes through it again, goes back to the hospital and says, you told me a spiritual awakening. I was a fucking idiot, Ebby Thatcher. I found Jesus. I saw the light. And then I fucking, here I am drunk again. And one of the things that he gets at this point in Towns Hospital is the Belladonna cure. And one of the things that is included in the Belladonna is a hallucinogen. Now, I've not exactly been able to trace just how close this is to like psilocybin LSD, but it certainly solicits uh, some similar sounding experiences, including hallucinations. Is Belladonna a plant? Yes. Okay, okay. I need to find some. So our girl, right? So Bill Wilson takes the belladonna and is starting to have the mystical trip. Have you experienced LSD, psilocybin? I hated LSD, but I love a mushroom. Okay. Not anymore, not anymore. (laughs) So Bill Wilson suddenly feels great ecstasy, this lightness. He feels this kind of divine connection, a flash of light. And he says, if there's a God, I'm in. And he has his spiritual awakening. Okay. Okay, like capital. He ne- from this night forward, he never drinks again. Whoa. And Ebby Thatcher comes in a little bit afterwards, and he's kind of, Bill Wilson's like, <laughs> it wasn't Jesus, ha ha. Like, I had my spiritual awakening, but it was out of church, so I don't even know if you're going to want to talk to me because basically I'm saying it's not your God. It's something else. And Ebby Thatcher's like, hey, man. And this is what I find so cool. This is when I said this was like a really cool story. There's just some sort of, Lovely twists in the road that don't always go this mm-hmm. way, right? Ebby Thatcher is like, yeah, man, God can be a lot of things, right? Yeah. For like coming from this like Christian evangelical organization, it's sort of a surprising reaction. Yeah. And he introduces Bill Wilson to a book written in 1902 by a guy named William James called The Varieties of Religious Experiences. William James is considered the father of modern psychology. He is as secular as they get. But he says, basically, anybody I've ever known or researched who has had something that they describe as a spiritual awakening, a a, a divine epiphany, a come to Jesus, right? Whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. What they all share is three things. Coming from a place of calamity, okay. admitting defeat, and appealing to a higher power for help. Help me. I need something outside of me. Mm-hmm. Those three things are the only three like common elements. And when someone sort of has that and then achieves a spirit, then they, they're changed. Yeah. They have truly profound like understandings and different, different perspectives. And it's enormously profound. It sounds like the first three steps. 
doesn't it, though? Yeah. Right. So Bill is sober, as I said. He has his higher power. That's why it is. Bill, that's why when you said your experience was with AA was a little too Christian-y, mm-hmm. and the fact is there is the Christian evangelical f- structure is the basis of AA, and yet the founder's most profound moment in the creation of the organization is by definition non-Christian, but spiritual in a way. So to to the point of like each group being autonomous, you can see how some lean Mm -hmm. (laughs) into it in different ways. So our, all right. So Bill is a convert now and he is like, I'm going to go and spread this message of sobriety. Like I was a hopeless drunk 24 hours later. Like I am pissing off my wife, losing my business, drinking as bad as all of you. Now I don't anymore. Let me help you. So he's going to hospitals, asylums, drunk tanks, and he's getting a little preachy. With Belladonna? Like, is he preachy? No, I wish, right? See, that's the thing. Like, girl, I read this and I was like, obviously it's Belladonna. And they are right now in the world of addiction and recovery. um, Psychedelics have become a really important tool. Ketamine, psilocybin. But in the history as I received it through all these various sources, virtually no one leans on the import of Belladonna and psychedelics in this story, even though it was key for Bill Wilson and... You know, there's a lot of reasons why. One is, of course, it was not available and not researched and demonized and all sorts from that. But also it doesn't sound like Bill Wilson necessarily thought it was the drug, but that feeling that there may be a way to come to that feeling he had, that you can come to that feeling via various reasons. And this Belladonna cure had been given to lots of other people, Mm -hmm. lots of other drunks who didn't suddenly get sober. So it's obviously... Because I didn't do it right. <laughs> that's exactly right. Um, so Bill is now sober and he's going out and he's not really converting anyone. <laughs> he's not bringing people to sobriety. He's not getting them to like have the spiritual awakening and like bring the put the booze away because he doesn't have enough Belladonna for everybody, which is part of the problem. But he himself is staying sober. Good for so him. there's like good and bad, right? So sober, in fact, Lois is like, baby, and he's back with Lois, and he's got his job back, and his boss is like, God damn, Bill, we are so proud of you. We were really going to fire you. Now you're like back, and you're selling great. We need you to go on a business trip to Akron, Ohio. Uh Uh-oh. See what I mean? Yeah. I don't know what's worse. Like, business trip? (laughs) Akron, Ohio? Like... But somebody's going to need a drink. I need a drink just thinking about going on a business trip to Akron, Ohio. (laughs) Bring a vape. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So poor Bill. He knows. Oh, fuck. This is going to be a bitch, right? And he goes and he kind of kisses Lois goodbye. He's like, see you later. And he's been down this road before. It's always been a trap for him. He's gone on business trips and he's three days in the bucket. Like we always know that this is always bad. Does he ever say why? Why particularly business trips? Is it boredom? Well, I think that it's, you're in this hotel room. Once he starts, he can't stop. Uh So it's one of those, like, everyone's drinking. He has one, and now he's just in a hotel room with a bottle. So he just drinks until that bottle's gone and is sort of trapped in a web. You know what I mean? As, like, a former really heavy drug user, I didn't want to share my supply. So I don't understand people who are like, you have to, like, I'm going to give you my boot. Like, I don't, I don't identify with that. Well, I think it was because the people who were sharing it with him weren't alcoholics. Oh. You know what I mean? They're just like, hey, Bill, join us for a couple drinks. And then Bill's like, okay. And then they go to bed and he's... Still going. Yeah. I think that was largely what happened. And he's looking down the barrel of it again. He's like, oh, fuck. And he's in his room and he hears the clinking of glasses and he just fuck who doesn't want and he knows I can't do this he's like I need to talk to another drunk 
this is kind of what's worked, right? The Oxford group, another drunk who gets it. Mm-hmm. I need to find a drunk around here somewhere, right? And he gets on the phone. Oh, my God. And he, like, calls the local, you know, gets in touch with a guy who knows a guy from the Oxford group who knows the doctor who knows the guy. And they're like, oh, you need a drunk? Okay, good. <laughs> Call Henrietta. <laughs> Henrietta, she knows all these drunks. And her her full name is Henrietta Cyberling. Oh my God, I love her. She's a sweet lady who just likes to help drunks out. And God knows what she was doing through Prohibition. You know what I mean? She's just like, she sees the problem. There's really good people who just are making terrible choices and maybe she can help them. And her favorite drunk is a guy named Dr. Bob Smith. Oh, I know Dr. Bob. Dr. Bob. And Dr. Bob, here's what Dr. Bob's been doing for the last 16 years. Poor soul. Dr. Bob wakes up in the morning, hungover with the horrible jitters. Uh-huh. He gives himself a sedative to get the jitters down and to keep himself calm. And he tries like hell and usually manages to stay sober until noon mm-hmm. when his surgeries are done. Oh. Then he drinks until he passes out. Then he wakes up in the morning, takes a sedative to get the jitters down tries as hard as he can to stay sober till noon and it's not going well for dr bob and he has he knows the stakes as well as anyone he's a good dude he's trying so hard he feels so guilty he's gone through all of these things that a lot of the other alcoholics have described which is a couple of the sobriety moments and then horribly horribly down so henrietta's like hey bob there's a drunken town named bill who'd like to talk to you and bob is like i don't want to and then they were like but maybe this is a good idea. so he says 15 minutes Ooh. i'll give him 15 minutes if this and then i'm gonna go get drunk right like or he's already been drinking yeah <laughs> is it afternoon bob because <laughs> like, where are we at so bill and bob sit down and six hours later oh what was supposed to be 15 minutes, right. six hours later, they come out and they are buds and they get it. Dr. Bob hasn't had a drink. He's sobered up, in fact, because the ladies, Henrietta's done been bringing the coffee and the cigarettes haven't stopped. And like, can we just please give a nod to the coffee and the cigarettes Ugh, in this world? The oh. best. Oh, it's too bad. But they really are the best. <laughs> um, and so they are both sober. And now I told you, Bill, Bill W. never has a drink again. Bill Wilson, when he sees God that night, is sober for the rest of his life. No slips, no. Dr. Bob has been getting wasted (laughs) every single day for at least 16 years. Mm -hmm. And he is sober for a long time, has one relapse on a, guess what, business trip, a medical convention. Mm -hmm. Then he comes back, he gets back into the pro, you know, he's with Bill Wilson, he gets it back. His last drink, Bill Wilson gives him... (gasps) And it's a beer to steady his hands for a surgery. And after that, he literally never drinks again, never has another relapse. That date is June 10th, 1935, which is what is considered the birthday of AA. Because now you've got Bill Wilson, who achieves lifelong sobriety, Mm -hmm. who has converted (laughs) his first, we now know, lifelong sober. And it's Bill and Bob. Yeah. They're the founders of AA. So now what do we do? We've achieved, we've won. It's, it's sort of like, I like to think about it like a lab, like, like yeah. two experimenters who just like a light, the light bulb literally worked and being like, okay, we have this precious thing. Now, what do we do? How do we, what do we do next? And they're like, well, let's start telling people. So they move in together. 
<sighs> Bill like lives with Bob for That's a while. Funny. It's kind of cute. Ebby also lived briefly with Bill, which I think is kind of hot. Okay. Um, just like let's not drink and live together. What should we do? What 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 should we do? It's like hand jobs. Um. <laughs> There's no record of that. Wait, there's no time for hand jobs when you're chain smoking. <laughs> like, what are you... That's true. Coffee and cigarettes, Coffee and cigarettes. <laughs> can save you from a lot, it turns out. They would have lost their minds would... if they had ever tasted Red Bull, truly. Tr- honestly, <laughs> though. Um, so Bill and Bob decide they're going to write it down. Makes sense. So they write the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, um, is the title. And it is pretty much exactly the same today as it was when it was printed in 1939. Um, It was originally Alcoholics Anonymous, how a hundred people have achieved sobriety through this 12-step program. Mm -hmm. Um, It is now, of course, well over 100. The introduction is exactly the same, and then it goes through the 12 steps, and then it's got stories from specific individuals who remain anonymous Mm -hmm. that generally tell how they began drinking, how bad it got, how many things they tried to get sober, then how this program worked for them and how long they've been sober since. And so the thing that really changes with their republications every decade or so is um, update on the stories and the individuals and their experiences. Quick question, because I remember reading it and reading this, all the stories had the same vibe. Like, like all of them were written in very much the same uh way is that still true you know it's interesting i read a few myself and it does seem like there is something of a formula which is exactly what i said how i started drinking how it got so bad and it does it feels sort of like when you've read enough like um trashy magazine (laughs) bio pieces you know where they're like she walked into the room with her red suit and i knew you know what i mean you can sort of feel so yeah there is No one, however, that I've ever heard suggests that these stories aren't totally authentic. I think what they probably have is um, they're all written in the first person. Mm -hmm. I, here's what's happened to me. But who knows how much of that was written keys, fingers to keys, or or has been ghost written and oral. Yeah, but... um, Like a therapist writing a book. (laughs) Like a therapist writing a book. Exactly. Um, But yeah, I read a few of the stories and, and they were very compelling. Mm hmm and I think that one of the things that if you are not able to get into a, a physical meeting that the book accomplishes is make you feel like you have peers. If one is consuming the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and going to it to try to solve a, a drinking problem, that one of the things you're going to get from this book is camaraderie. Yeah. You're going to read about these individuals, and no matter where you're at or what you've done or what you've seen, you're going to be nodding and being like, yeah. Yeah, okay, they get it. I don't they get me. who you are. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, and they publish the book and they send it out. Now, this is one of my favorite elements of this story, okay. Jason, because, you know, I do history, girl. I do yeah. it in the eyes and the ears and the mouth. I love it. Stick it in and offices. I'll tell you how this story can often go in history. This is when it fucks up. Mm-hmm. Two really great individuals with really great stories and the purest of intentions find some level of success, have achieved a major goal for themselves, decide to share this goal, to to compartmentalize and structure their success in a way that can be consumed by others. And then it's usually right here where if it's going to turn evil, for lack of a better word, Mm -hmm. turn dark, get get to be a sore in the history 
of humanity. It's here. Mm -hmm. I have the book. I've written it down. I will sell it to you for $19.99. You're going to purchase it again every other year. There's also an audio program. (laughs) We've cornered the market on what the 12 steps are. The 12 steps are now trademarked. Do you know what I mean? And if you want to go to our licensed facilities, you have to pay us 20% and we're going to, it could have gone that way right away. Easy. Mm Mm-hmm. Or a spiritual. They've, they've said higher power, and they've kept it sort of ambiguous, but they can really commodify with that higher power. It's the AA higher power. We speak to them every night to pray to the AA higher power. You will have to recognize us as some sort of priests. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, the pages of history are filled with this. Among the things that makes the story of AA unique is that not only did they not do that, they never did that. No one has ever done that in here Mm -hmm. and it's lovely yeah (laughs) and it could have they asked jd rockefeller for money they said we have this book and sobriety and you see it's working can we have a gazillion dollars to spread the word and he said no i'll give you five grand to print it and then you should really consider never ever making any money or having any of you run anything like a corporation because he knew better than anybody that's where it all falls to shit yeah Right? Don't try to get rich off this, man. It'll spoil it. And God, you know, bless them. They didn't. Right. And so they wrote down in this book, there were no dues, no hierarchy. Every group is its own. I mean, it's laid out in there and these 12 steps. It's published in 1939 and 2,000 people like it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? And I mean, it, you know, that's, I'm not saying they sold 2,000 copies. I'm saying 2,000 people are in AA. They might be sharing the same 10 <laughs> books. You know what I mean? But there's 2,000 people in 1930, but that's a lot. They went from 100. It's gone to Cleveland. It's gone to Chicago. There's little pockets. There's people who are like, yes, we get it. We get these 12 steps. We're going to do this. And there's some success. Then, oh, 1941, just like every artist, just like every organization, <laughs> they go viral. Okay. The Saturday Evening Post publishes this beautiful article Mm -hmm. called The Drunkard's Best Friend. And it says, there's this program called Alcoholics Anonymous, and they have this book, and all these people are achieving the impossible. And everybody in America at this point, just like now, knows and loves someone with with an addiction of some kind that they see taking their lives from them, right? So this is when (laughs) AA hits the big time. That article was published in 1941. In 1942, their membership has tripled to 6,000. By 1950, it's 90,000. Super important. 1956, the American Medical Association defines alcoholism as a disease. This is huge for several reasons. One is the psychological impact that has on alcoholics and non-alcoholics alike Mm -hmm. to recognize this as something other than just being a sinful piece of shit, which is still where a lot of people start, right? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with you? Um, You're not just an asshole anymore. I'm not just an (laughs) asshole anymore, right? And it defines, it's it's a primary disease. It it comes, right, organically from an individual. It's chronic. It is progressive. It is symptomatic. And it is fatal, if untreated. Mm-hmm. This is all from the American Medical Association, which of course, the other thing. <laughs> and then the other thing that this does, in addition to like what it, how it affects the psyche of people is insurance companies. Cause if oh. it's defined as a disease, it means they need to start addressing it, which is again in the plot of this story where AA could have gone. Bad. Yeah. Oh, it's a disease. 
and insurance companies are covering it, you just pay, it could have immediate, but they have baked into their introduction. I read to you at the beginning, no dues, no fees, no membership. Right. And that is from great grandma, the Oxford group, <laughs> right? Um, by 1975, there are 500,000 people in AA. By the early 80s, it's 1 million. By the millennium 2000, there were 2 million people in AA. In 1945, there were about 500 groups. Today, there are 125,000 groups in all 50 states in 180 nations. Wow. There are over 25 offshoots of this like structure of like the 12-step higher power from Cocaine Anonymous, Gamblers Anonymous, Overeaters Anonymous. Mm -hmm. There's so many that sort of follow this structure. So <laughs> what I'm going to do next <laughs> is talk about that structure, what an AA meeting is and what it's like to kind of encounter AA today. And um, you, when was the last time that you attended an AA meeting? I haven't been to a meeting, oh my God, since 20, either 2014 or 2015. I can't remember. See, and I was told when I moved here that if you wanted to see a celebrity, the two best places were Runyon Canyon and AA meetings. Yes. <laughs> this is so, it's still true. So when you decided you needed a meeting, did you already know where you were going to go? Or are you looking at like a directory for like what's near you or what's happening? There's definitely a directory that you, that anybody can access if they're really having a hard time with alcohol. I was, uh, uh, suggested a meeting mm -hmm. by, uh, the psychotherapist at, a when I was in rehab. So she's like, this is a gay meeting. Go to the, go to West Hollywood, go to a gay meeting, find yourself some sober gay friends. Great. And so that's what I did every Saturday for like a year. I went with my closest friend in rehab and we would, we would go to the meeting in West Hollywood and then we would go to swingers. <laughs> <laughs> that's a hell of a Saturday night. Yeah. Sounds like there's give or take mm -hmm. six different types of meetings. Okay. There's open Meetings, which means and literally anyone can go. You don't even have to identify as an alcoholic. You can just go to like see what happens here. Um, have closed, really bad hot dog water coffee. Right, you can do your celebrity <laughs> sighting, right? But you still have to be anonymous and you can't talk about can't anybody. Can't talk about it. Um, and then there's closed meetings, which are for self-identifying alcoholics only. Speaker meetings, which is apparently either invited speakers that are delivering a particular message or a member who is going to tell their story. Mm-hmm. Discussion, sort of sitting in a circle style, sharing at the same time. Mm -hmm. Big book meetings, where they read from the Alcoholics Anonymous big book. And step meetings, where they focus on one or several of the 12 steps and how they're doing yeah. on those. There's no, they, they encourage donations if you can. You're asked to serve, set up chairs or clean up, um, and then sponsor yeah. other people. Does that sound like your experience? Yes. I did, I did a combination of... Uh, open meetings, a lot of speaker meetings. Um, it's so funny because the place I used to go to was right across the street from the log cabin, which was the really, really popular oh. like, gay meeting spot, and they would do speaker meetings. It got to a point, though, where I was like, you guys are just doing a tight half hour on, like... <laughs> Like, we got it. You've perfected your yeah. your thing. We've seen it before. Let's get something new on that stuff. <laughs> That's right. And I'm going to need some more hazelnut creamer over here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, at a certain point, it all it, it all starts to sound very similar. Like you were saying with the stories at the beginning, you're just like, okay, issue, problem, problem solving. Yeah. Now here's where I am today. Yeah. So uh, it got very frustrating to hear after a certain point, which is, this has actually been super healing because I did not leave AA mm. happy. <laughs> so what I want to do now yes. is go through the 12 steps. Oh my God, okay. Now, and you jump in again. 
Do, yes, you, please. How, okay, so, and I, my understanding is that they are progressive. Yes. You start at one and go to 12, but mm -hmm. they aren't necessarily in this order. Like, you could just do, like, you want to do them all, but mm -hmm. if, you can, if you need to skip six and do seven, you can do that. It, is that not how you experienced it? My experience was that if you were, like, having a super-duper hard time, you could jump around and skip six and go straight to seven or eight. Um, I just left the group. <laughs> you left the group. I just left the group. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But... Um, from what I remember, I feel like we could pare these down to about eight steps. Okay. But we'll, we'll see if yes. this, okay. this All matches. Right. The, the 12 steps as presented by AA. <clears throat> Step one. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol or cocaine or gambling or whatever. Yeah. 12 steps you're in. That our lives have become unmanageable. Check. Check. Step two came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity I talked earlier about not like the crazy shit you do when you're drinking, but this insanity of thinking you can just keep doing this and somehow something's just going to organically yeah, change. Yeah, I can just do a bump. No, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no problem. But And this is where the greater power, they said specifically that the greater power can be this group. Right. Like the higher power can just be the five people in this room are collectively the higher power outside of myself. Mm -hmm. And there is a chapter in the big book, I read it, called For Us Agnostics. Mm -hmm. So for whatever reason, they really do put it in print. Uh, step number three, made a decision to turn our will, our lives over to the care of God as we understand them. Doesn't that kind of sound like two to you? Yeah, it does kind of. <laughs> well, maybe like, maybe two is like, okay, I believe that a higher power can restore me to sanity. Mm -hmm. Sure, I believe that. Mm -hmm. And then step three is, I've decided to give that over to the higher power that seems like two delin yeah steps. they could be separate paragraphs so they could be the same paragraph little baby steps depends little baby steps you know what he probably he started with six this is true and was like 12 sounds better so some of these i think are well how many paragraphs. apostles were there that's exactly why he did 12. yeah, yeah. Well, bless his heart <laughs> uh number four made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves Moral inventory. That yeah. sounds helpful. That sounds like everyone could do a thorough moral inventory. Absolutely. How was yeah. that step for you? How did I fuck? Like thinking yeah. about how I fucked up and who I needed to apologize to. Yeah. Super helpful. Helpful. Who doesn't need that? Now, everything from this, that, that last step four on down, is pretty much lifted from the Oxford group. Mm -hmm. Great grandma. <laughs> <laughs> um, so step number five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Mm -hmm confession yeah that's usually when you would you would sit down with your sponsor and go here's how i fucked up and here's when and here's why and blah mm -hmm. blah blah which is kind of feels not great sure well I, and just in terms of like you have people who are not therapists who are attempting to therapize sure so i remember being really uncomfortable during this point and i do remember hearing stories about people who would do step five with their sponsor and their sponsor would uh at a later date, hold whatever thing uh, that they've uh, done over their head later. So it was like, yeah, can get kind of icky. That's tricky. And it's tricky, too, because it's a very sort of universally understood lowercase italics good thing to do, which is confess, t talk about it, say sure. what you've done, right? But like, yeah, you, not to just anybody, right. not just not anywhere. Right. I can see that. Um, number six, we entirely, we are entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. I feel it could have been combined with five, but okay. Okay. All right. Sure. And also be like, well, don't remove all of 
Some of these defects are kind of fun. Yeah. No, I can. Okay. Number seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Again. See, these are all very good. They are great. And and again, this is why when you read these, if you are sort of spiritually agnostic and uh, (laughs) self-defined, fuck you as I am, um, why and how AA could have this as their 12 steps, the 12 steps, the thing we all know, and never been dogmatic, authoritarian from an overlying, that an individual group may be. Sure, sure, sure. Is something. You know what I mean? They obviously didn't take these steps to the worst case scenario that we can both imagine. Right. Do you know what I mean? Right. Um, Number eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Very helpful. Very helpful. Very. What a wonderful idea. Which is, this is the, this is where I stopped. <laughs> so you did, okay, so you made, you, you made the list mm-hmm. of all the people you've wronged, and then, then after that, make direct amends to such people whenever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Right. I think that's an important step because there, I do know that there's some like, you come clean over there. I don't need, I don't need you to come clean with me. Right. And, and there's some people to recognize. There's some people who don't want to talk to me, so I'm just like, I can keep I made my it, side I, of this. But you're on my list. You're on my list. <laughs> I put you on my list. I'm gonna <laughs> leave you alone. But you're on my list. Yes. Um, number ten continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Mm-hmm. See, you can jump over. Yeah. You did that one. Uh, number eleven sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understand him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. That's where the 12 steps, I feel like, takes a tonal turn. Because, like, it feels very lifted from somewhere else. Because the other ones feel like they were written mm-hmm. by the same person. And then that one feels not written by the same person. Sure. And then they do make a point of putting always, as you understand, right. like, there's all these disclaimers for all the people who are like, I don't like that stuff. <laughs> um, and yet, at the beginning, meditation. Who can't benefit from a little regular meditation, right? We love, we love a good yeah. meditation. Um, and step number 12, having had... A spiritual awakening. As the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics mm-hmm. and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Mm-hmm. There you go. Yeah. One through 12, baby. One through 12. There's no fighting, apparently, in any AA meeting. No fighting, no confrontation. No There's cross-talk. no leaders. There's no, uh, that may be the a group's individual uh, rules. No CEO. They call anyone who's sort of in charge or leading is just a trusted servant. Mm-hmm. Um, outside issues, it's believed will erode the fellowship. So there's nothing political. I imagine that is always very difficult, but particularly right now. Um, and I thought this was really interesting. The, why the anonymity is so key to Alcoholics Anonymous. Why do we remain anonymous? And why do we require you to remain anonymous? Because it's not just like, you're welcome to come and you don't even need to say who you are. It's like, no, don't say who you are, right? Um, The first is to spare the members the stigma of being an alcoholic. I mean, our first two members are an important stockbroker and a doctor. You can see why they weren't really eager to be the poster children for alcoholism, right? Mm Um, the second reason is to prevent the organization from really public, high-profile people being like, 
I am the face of AA. And one of the problems with that is that people's egos then start to be like, everyone knows me and everyone knows that I'm the, so I'm the one who's achieved sobriety in AA and I'm this big AA star. Mm -hmm. Therefore I'm better than the rest of the drunks. (laughs) I can probably have a drink or two and not fall into the hole. Like it tends to just defeat an individual's actual journey to sobriety Mm -hmm. to like publicize who they are. Yeah. And then the other side of that coin is if they relapse, <laughs> these very non-anonymous high-profile people look at me, I'm the face of AA, they suddenly relapse, now AA looks like they don't work and it can bring the whole organization down. Right. I just thought that was like a really thorough mm-hmm. <laughs> explanation for why. Before we go, I just wanted to briefly mention Lois Wilson. Yes. Do you know anything about her? It was Bill Wilson's loyal wife, right? The one who was just like, you're not making that money on the stockbroker and you're just such a hopeless drunk. But she stayed with him, you know, through the whole thing. And when he started Alcoholics Anonymous, shortly after that, in 1951, she started Mm Al-Anon, which is for people who are affected by the alcoholism of others. Mm -hmm. And then in 1957, she started Alateen, which is for teenagers who are specifically affected by the alcoholism of others. And I know a lot of people who have um, found great community within Al-Anon and Alateen because it has, it doesn't matter what the alcoholic is doing. Mm -hmm. If they're in recovery or not, if they're in 12 steps or not, it's just sort of a way to share like, and you don't have to say my dad's a drunk. (laughs) Like (laughs) the the anonymity isn't only for you. It's for the individual. Like I want to be able to talk about what's going on, but I don't want to have to say who the individual is because I'd be, you know, yeah, my dog. This is, this was really fun to revisit because like, like I said, I didn't have a great experience. I think that sometimes going back to the origin of something, whether you love it or you hate it Mm -hmm. can always give you, if nothing else, a new perspective on it. It's why I love history in general and why I have had so much fun fucking the history of this. In particular, so deep, so thorough. Um, Listen, Jason Ryan, I adore you. Tell me that you will come back and be a guest again. Hundred percent. I'll give you one of the other twenty-four thousand other topics. (laughs) (laughs) I love you, Don. Oh, I love you, Jason. Am I right? Now, you've inevitably fallen in love with him too. So make sure to follow him and see him live whenever you can. The next episode, ooh, it's a very special treat. I am going deep on the history of the most salacious and enduring sex toy, the vibrator. And what's more, my guests are my two big sisters and my mom. (laughs) You won't want to miss it. (laughs) In the meantime, our theme song was composed and performed by Kat Perkins. A reminder that you can find my sources, links to the books, documentaries, and articles I reference in the summary of this episode or by emailing us hilfpodcast at gmail.com or messaging us on social media at hilfpodcast. This has been Hilf. History I'd like to fuck with Don Brody. I'm Don Brody, reminding you that history is a party and everybody's coming. <laughs>
tied it to a rope and hung it on the wall. After spending three years really tapping into her divine feminine, she finds out she's divine masculine. That's a mind fuck. Yeah. How yeah. much of a mind fuck is that? Fucking sharks ate Mark under the dinghy. After his dad dies, he fucking marries all his dad's oh, wives. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yes. He, like, marries all his stepmoms. <laughs> there was this egg thing where you line up, like, seven or eight guys side by side. They lay on their backs with their eyes closed. And whoever is, like, the alpha in the room, they crack an egg into that person's mouth. And then they pass the egg mouth to mouth until they get to the end of the line. And then the last person has to swallow the egg. Ugh. Are they, and they're naked? Did you say that? Uh, it didn't say if they were naked. Okay, I just feel like they probably are. But they could are. be. We're your hosts. I'm Ashley Richards. And I'm Michelle Mosier. Join us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere you listen to podcasts. That's fucked up.